With cybersecurity becoming more complex and the threats even more dangerous, knowing what to do to protect yourself can seem like an impossible task. That is until now. Welcome to the Cyberbytes Podcast, where we help you filter through the noise one bite at a time. Good morning and welcome to the first Meet the Candidate episode of the Cyber Bytes podcast. This will be a series from the Cyber.now podcast, my original podcast, that will be carried over to this new show. As a reminder, I, I do feel it's important that we should make the most informed decisions that we can when we go to the ballot box. The process of informing ourselves really needs to start happening now. Instead of just complaining about it, I want to do my part to help you make the best decision possible when you cast your vote. So I've structured structured the Meet the Candidate episodes not to be adversarial. I want the candidates to come on the show to talk about who they are and what makes them the best person for the job. Now, that doesn't mean I won't stray away from some tough questions, but I do think it's important that we, we get to know the human behind our political candidates. So with that said, I'm very honored to welcome John Westerkamp to the show. He is one of three candidates running for Indiana's Attorney General. Good morning, John. How are you, sir? Good morning, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm well. Yeah, and you know, with the, the current COVID-19 situation, I hope you and your family are healthy, safe, and sound. Thank you. We are in such an unusual time. But we've been hunkered down like the rest of the state, and I'm glad to say my family's well. I hope yours is, is as well. Well, it's good to hear, and thank you. Yes, so far we're we're abiding by the the rules, whether we agree with the with them or not. From the uh, the action of the governor being in the healthcare field primarily, I do feel like it is the right choice. It's it's what we need to do. Now, the whole government involvement and forcing this is a whole other conversation for another time. But beside the point, uh, <laughs> we are doing well, and we hope that all of the the Hoosiers out there are doing well as uh, additionally, and our prayers, our thoughts and prayers to those that have lost their lives as a result of the COVID-19 Absolutely. virus. Um, and we pray for those that are recovering from it right now. So... But before we actually get into the the real meat of why I asked you on the show, and again, thank you so much. I know it's a busy time even with everything going on, but yeah. tell us about yourself. I mean, who who is John Westerkamp? <laughs> uh, I'm a lifelong Hoosier, a lifelong Republican, a lifelong conservative. I've been, I, I grew up in Greenwood on the south side of Indianapolis, in Johnson County. And I don't think I realized until law school how conservative I was and how much of an impact being a resident of Johnson County had on me. Uh, the values that I grew up with were faith, family, and country. And going to IU Law School was was an experience because it seemed like uh, they wanted to turn those ideas upside down. And they did their best to try to propagandize me with with becoming a leftist, but I resisted and, and made it through <laughs> happily. But uh, uh, like I said, lifelong Hoosier. I went to Purdue for undergrad. I studied management. Boiler, Boiler up. up. <laughs> I'm to, to another fellow Boilermaker. I also got a master's in finance 
from Purdue. Uh, it was a great program and has really helped me in my practice. Actually, I, I do business transactions with small businesses in Indiana and having a background in finance has been invaluable. And like I said, I went to IU for law school, uh, studied there. I've worked uh, with politicians since high school. I got involved politically uh, in Greenwood at the mayor's office, helped him get reelected, started a community service organization through his office and then have worked on other campaigns since then with the House Republican Campaign Committee, which tries to get a majority elected to the Indiana House of Representatives. I've worked for three Indiana judges, including a state Supreme Court justice. My job now, though, is to represent small businesses and transactions and regulatory compliance. And uh, that's that's my practice. But the last 15 months, I've been on the road uh, traveling our state. I've been to all 92 counties uh, with this race. So it's been a busy time. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for the introduction of uh, of your background. And yeah. So I, I know it seems like politics is probably the last thing that we should be talking about given the current situation. However, I you know, I think at some point, you know, we're going to get through this situation, get past these uh, stay-at-home orders and start rebuilding sure. at, at some point. But I also think having conversations like this will help maybe you know, take our minds off some of the constant news cycle of, of COVID-19 and really distract us a little bit, which I, I don't think is a bad thing. And, and again, one of those things that's going to be waiting for us on the other side of this is the Indiana primary, mm-hmm. which was moved to June um, officially via the Indiana mm-hmm. Election Commission Order 2020-37. Besides the, the campaign being moved, how as, how else has this current situation affected how you're getting out and meeting with potential delegates at the convention and potential uh, delegates that haven't and won't be named until after the primary and then the the constituents of the state? That's a good question. I've I've been very blessed and I'm safe and my family is safe. So uh, I don't consider anything about what I'm going through now to a hardship compared to people that I'm talking with on the phone. I've talked to some delegates that have the virus. I've talked to delegates that have lost their job, people that have had businesses going through tough times. And there's real struggles around our state because of this virus. With respect to the campaign, though, we, we my wife and I were traveling the state every day. And at the beginning of March, when all this was first, before it had started, we had like 80 dinners on our calendar wow. in March and April. We were we we had, we sat down one uh, Sunday, went to a McDonald's, got a cup of coffee, and one of those ice cream Sundays because my wife and I both like ice cream. It's sort of our splurge, and we sat down and we're like, okay, so what's the plan for the next two months? And we figured out where we're going to be and what we're going to do in the whole plan. And then the virus pops up, and I think at first, like most people, we were like. We don't know what to believe because the media cries wolf an awful lot. And uh, is this real? Is it not? And then it became very apparent that it is real. And all of those dinners evaporated. All of the opportunities to speak with people personally are gone. Um, but like I said, I have been traveling the state since January of, of last year. So I'm really happy that I started when I did because I feel like I've Started started the relationships, and I'm able to reach out over the telephone, even though I'm not even able to make, meet in person with people uh, and and t- talk to them about the issues that are important to me and the the way we need to go in our state. But it has been a very different time. 
and uh, I'm sure that books will be written about it in terms of, you know, the, the primary has been moved back. And as a consequence, there's only 18 days between primary and the convention. Ordinarily, there'd be 45 days. And so the, the primary is the process by which we select delegates to go to the convention. And, and I'll just, I'll give you a brief background on convention politics, because maybe not all your, your viewers know about how it works. It's a little different. So uh, statewide elected officials, with the exception of the governor and the superintendent of public instructions, are nominated by the Democratic and Republican parties through a convention process. And in order to be able to vote at the convention, you have to be a delegate. In order to be a delegate, you have to run to be a delegate in the, in the Indiana primary. And each county has a little bit of a different way of selecting, or, or at least a little bit of a different way of how they apportion delegates. So some are done by commissioner districts. Others are done at large. It, it just depends on what county you're from. But you, you run for delegate. If you win, then you get a vote. And then ultimately, it's 1,800 people that will decide the future of the party in terms of its nominee. I like this process because it, it's the one day a year, one day out of 365 days a year, where the grassroots of the party has a voice about the future of the party. And when I first got involved in this process was 2008. And I, I was one of the younger delegates that were, were running, and uh, it was Greg Zeller versus John Costas, and that, that was the attorney general's race then. And I've been to several conventions since then and really have enjoyed it being a delegate, but I've also enjoyed being a candidate because it's much more individual, it's much more personal because you actually can reach out to 1,800 people in a way that you couldn't reach out to 7 million people if, if it were a statewide primary. It's, it's going to be different, but I, I guess the conclusion of that is that since there's only 18 days between the primary and the convention, we will only know who the actual delegates are uh, you know, with, with about two weeks' notice. So if someone has signed up to be a delegate, I'm assuming they're going to be a delegate because uh, I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to like I ordinarily would would have because of the, the shorter span. But other than that, you know, making telephone calls is, is an ordinary part of the, the campaign. And, and that's certainly a big part of the campaign right now. But it is strange that it's April in the middle of the Lincoln Day dinner season. And I'm, I'm here at my home in Zionsville. Oh, and, and Lincoln Day dinner, I should say what Lincoln Day dinners are. Uh, not everybody may know, but usually each county and in some cases, particularly in Marion County, that townships have a annual Lincoln Day dinner to honor our founder of our party, Abraham Lincoln. And it's a great opportunity to meet active Republicans in, in each of those communities. And usually they're in the spring, February, March, and April. April is usually the busiest month where there's a Lincoln Day dinner, at least one every single day. And usually, you know, I think last year there were five in one day. The most we've gone to this year has been three different dinners uh, on one particular Saturday. It was earlier in the year, though. So No, thanks for that background of the convention. And again, we talked about civics a little bit earlier before we started the the podcast recording. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I take it for granted because I have been uh, social studies and current events and politics has been something that... I've been ingrained in since I was a kid. My mom was very political. And so I take it for granted that others may understand what I know or don't understand what I don't know. So thank you for that, that background. And I think that it's good to understand the process by which a candidate goes through um, from when they decide to run and that the whole campaign process. Because, I, I, you know, most Americans only see 
the television ads mm-hmm. and they, or the mailers that they get from the candidates. I don't think they, unless they're following them on Twitter or friends with them, they don't really get to peel behind the curtains that much. And I, I and I think that's one of the, the values of this show. What I bring is allow people peel, uh, look behind the curtain and, Sure. And see what's going on. See a little bit of how the the sausage is made, if you will. Um, you know, what did your wife and what did your family say to you when you said, "Hey, you know what? I've got this crazy idea. I think I'm going to run for political office. Not only that, but run for the attorney general's office." Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Just because um, I was dating my wife when I floated the idea to her, so I, you know, I was. I felt I felt God tug at my heart in the latter part of 2018, saying that you need to look at this, and and the attorney general's office is a very important position in state government, and it's the the insurance policy against federal overreach. It's the backstop against federal intrusion into Hoosiers' lives, and I care very deeply about protecting Indiana and, and Hoosiers prerogatives and rights and, and upholding federalism. And so I started thinking about this and I was dating uh, this girl that was way out of my league and was, was serious about her. And I remember we went to this local pizza place and I'm like, Oh no, this is going to hurt my chances with, with Tara, but I need to tell her where, where I feel like God's leading me, where I, where I think I'm headed. And so I told her, hey, this is going to sound crazy, but I think I, I need to look at considering running for office. And she took it in stride. And I, we talked about why. And one of the fundamental reasons why I thought it was important for me to consider it was because there's a principle that to those whom much is given, much is required. And so... I've been given a lot in Indiana opportunities academically and professionally and personally, and that, that puts an obligation on me to give back. And so we talked about that and we, and we talked about how the life might change, although you never really know. I, this is my first time running for political office and I had no idea how life would change when I was thinking about it, but knew it would. And so told her and I said, let's take this really slow in terms of of evaluating this. So I, I formed an exploratory campaign in January of 2019 and wanted to know two things. I wanted to know the mind of the state in terms of, is there a desire for new conservative leadership and is there a path to win? And so I went to 42 counties in those six months and some of our dinners were in uh, Kentland, Indiana at a Lincoln Day dinner in Newton County and uh, <laughs> some, other, some other places where you wouldn't expect to be taking a girl you're dating uh, on a date, but uh, that was a really good test <laughs> to, to show that Tara was in in this uh, and committed to me, and we were committed to each other because you know the the it's a two hour drive up and a two hour drive back, and you spend two or three or four hours. But um, Tara, Tara would go to two a week, and I would go to maybe three or four a week. And I remember I told my parents. And uh, my mom was concerned and she's like, oh, well, I, I feel like this is what God has called you to do ever since you were a little boy. I've always had an interest in history and an interest in history led me to a, a deep interest in government, which led me to an interest in law, which has led me to where I am now. And so she said, the, you know, the rough and I, I hate to see you getting into the rough and tumble world of politics, but I feel like this is what you were made to do. 
So six months in, June 27th, we announced I wanted to make a, I've tried my, this entire campaign to show that I'm, I want to represent all of Indiana, which is why I've been every community. And so when I announced on June 27th, I announced in Indianapolis, Elkhart, Fort Wayne, and Evansville all in one day because I wanted every part of the state that I could possibly get to, to have the opportunity to meet me and, and uh, to feel like they were a part of the announcement process. And then uh, one month to the day after that, July 27th, I got married. Wow. So it was, uh, it was quite a summer. I've talked to a lot. Of, I've been to a lot of the, the colleges and given speeches. And one of the jokes that I make when I speak to them is, you know, people ask me for career advice and other other advice. And I just say, just don't run for state. Don't announce a campaign for statewide office and get married in the same summer. <laughs> yeah. It makes for a chaotic life. Yeah. I, I don't even want to imagine. <laughs> but that's, getting, that's, getting married, getting married to t- everybody that we heard during this whole planning process of our wedding. Oh, getting, getting married is so, so stressful and so, so difficult and everything else. And compared to announce the announcement planning, the wedding was e- marrying Tara was easy. <laughs> it was the easiest thing that we did. We, we, um, I'll just tell one more story is because we were on the, we were doing the Lincoln day circuit last year. And when we were engaged, we got engaged in March. And so we're, that was the midst of the Lincoln day dinner. So we looked at our calendars and we're like, well, we have one Saturday that's available in the next month. And so we should find venue, a venue that we can lock down to get married in the next four months because our engage, we, we knew we wanted to marry each other. So we didn't want a long engagement. And so we went to 15 different venues from the north side of Indianapolis all the way down to Bloomington and then made a decision about where we were getting married that day. So yeah, that was it, not the traditional path, but it's, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this without her. Yeah, that, that's good. I, and I know for my wife, there's many of the things that I've done in my career, I wouldn't have been able to do without her support. I mean, because it is a, a partnership. Yeah. And so having that, that support is really helpful. It's tremendous. I mean, yeah, I, I get where you're coming from on, on that part. And I'm glad that she is supportive of you. I want to touch back on something that you mentioned, and and that was your exploratory committee. Mm-hmm. During that process, what were you hearing that ultimately made you to decide to run? Well, I, I guess the most encouraging thing about that process for me was getting to go to parts of the state that I've never been to go, that I've never been able to go to yet. And I met a lot of people during that time and realized that there's plenty of Hoosiers around the state that share the same view of government that I have. And it's easy. It it was easy for me because in the legal world for one, for some reason or another, most lawyers tend to be left leaning and I'm not a left leaning guy. So to get to reconnect with Hoosiers and realize, oh, you know, I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that want a limited role for government, that want a lot of accountability, that want to limit spending and the the tax burden on people. So that was really encouraging to me. The other part was that people really do take an active role in their community. And so I met the people that keep uh, the wheels on the wagon, so to speak, in, in all of communities around the state of Indiana, And when I'd meet for coffee with individuals and they'd be like, well, I got to go and I got to help at the food shelter or, or church function or something like that. And really that's the best picture of America because our framers didn't intend 
that the government be the end all be all that ran everybody's life down to you know the, the, the smallest detail. It really depends on a citizenry that is informed, that is active, that takes responsibility for their neighbors. And that's what I've seen around our state. And it was very encouraging to me, particularly because as a lawyer, lawyer you're paid to be a, a skeptic. So when I got involved, I kept thinking everything about what this is going to be like is going to be something like a presidential campaign or like the federal politics where people get really angry and excited and are yelling over each other. And that wasn't what it was like at all. People really do have an interest in in good government and they want to get to know the candidates and they're really pleased when you show up. And so I've been showing up and uh, once we're done with the coronavirus, I'll keep showing up after that. So, and I actually probably should have led with this a little bit earlier, but what about the attorney general's office in that position that you're like, that's what I want. Was it, was it kind of that calling that you mentioned, you know, God calling you to that particular position? I'm very faithful and religious myself. So I I feel that, I mean, that's what that calling to serve as a state trooper. I get it. I I had that. And uh, so I, I didn't know if it was just the, in general to politics or there was something about this specific yes. office that you wanted to, that's it, that that's where I need to be. Yes. I, and there, there are a lot of, like most big decisions in your life, it's not one thing. It's a bunch of different things that say, this is, this is the path. And I think at the top of that list is, I believe in my marrow that every life has dignity, that every single person is made in the image of God and therefore has worth and value. And the attorney general's office has a critical role and a a role that's not substitutable in any way to defend the pro-life policies of our state. Indiana has a long, long history of protecting life. In fact, the Indiana state constitution in article one, section one says that our creator has given us the inalienable right of life. And for us to live up to the, the constitutional value, we need to have people that, that share that value and are willing to defend and articulate that all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And so that, that issue is, is so important to me, and I want to be a leader in that issue uh, to defend life. If we have somebody from the other party that takes the office uh, that doesn't share our values, we don't have the assurance that they will defend Indiana's laws defending every life. I think also I, I've seen my own clients crushed by regulatory complexity, by federal overreach. And I had mentioned this earlier, the attorney general provides a backstop against federal administrative agencies trying to encumber small businesses, my clients, when they don't really have a constitutional leg to stand on. And there's, I have a lot of concerns about this because The federal government was intended to be a government of limited powers, a limited role. And that's why the framers in Article 1 listed out the explicit powers of the federal government. And another important important part of that is just the amalgam of the executive, legislative, and judicial branch all in one position. The administrative agencies of today, they can make the rules, they can execute the rules, and they can interpret the rules. They have all three powers. And that was what our framers were trying to avoid. We were trying to have we were trying to have enduring liberty 
by separating the powers into different branches and the administrative agencies undermine that. There's a, an interesting statistic. We have 50,000 pages of U.S. federal statutes on the books that govern our lives, 300 million people, 50,000 pages. That's, that's a big number, but every single one of those statutes was passed by the House, passed by the Senate, signed by the president, or it was the president vetoed and it was overridden by a larger majority of Congress. There are 200,000 pages of formal regulations that govern all of our lives that were voted on by no one. They were made by faceless bureaucrats in Washington. They are not electorally accountable. There's, there's very little restrictions on them, and it undermines the electoral process that we have where, whereby we're ruled by people that we, we vote for. I think that that's a very important role to be sure that if the federal government, particularly the administrative agencies, exceed their constitutional bounds, uh, the Constitution says thus far and no farther, and the attorney general of the state of Indiana and, and the other states have an important role in, in suing the federal government when, when there's an overreach. No, that, that's a really good point, and that's a, a, a mindset that I have as well as federal government being as limited as possible. I think the, the more you centralize, the less accountable that the, even the, the politicians, let alone the actual regulators, are to the people. And we've even heard stories here within Indiana uh, of sheriffs kind of nullifying, uh, if you will, I think it's a term that the Libertarian Party likes to throw around, but they stand up to the federal government says, no. You know, FDA or FBI or whatever federal agency, which in the Constitution, there is no federal enforcement like law enforcement. Um, it's all been passed through laws beyond, you know, the, the Constitution. But they're standing up for the people and pushing back. And I think, and having seen this myself, where the federal government knows they don't have a constitutional authority. They get the states hooked on cash and saying, well, you know, we're going to demand voluntary compliance by withholding cash if you don't comply right. with this regulation. So how would you um, combat that in, in this role if you were elected? Well, the, the role of the attorney general, if this is an important thing to note, is not a constitutional role. So we have the U.S. Constitution, we have the Indiana State Constitution. The Indiana State Constitution creates the General Assembly, it creates the Supreme Court, it creates the governor's office. It does not, however, mention an attorney general. The attorney general is a creature of legislative statute. It's, it was created by the General Assembly. And so the powers and the authorities uh, of the attorney general are determined by the people's elected representatives. And so what I, I believe my mandate is, is to fulfill the role that the General Assembly has given to me, to not go farther, to not go less than that. And so the, the Attorney General has the authority to sue the federal government when it overreaches, and I will absolutely do that. There's so many examples of that, and um, that's what I'm prepared to do and, and to speak. And this is the other, the other thing that we need to be doing in the office is use the office as a bully pulpit to talk about the legal culture to talk about the enduring nature of the Constitution, that it doesn't change from time to time on the whims of judges and administrators, that it has an enduring meaning. And, and that enduring meaning, the fact that the First Amendment means what it meant 
in the 18th century means what it means now means that we have free speech, free political speech and free, you know, free speech, freedom, religion, the second amendment, it means the same thing. And so my, my view on the law has been, has been influenced significantly by Justice Scalia. I got to meet him one time in law school and, and that is the legal culture that we need to renew. This has been orthodoxy for forever. And we, we need to remind ourselves of that. Nice. Pivoting just a little bit, we're talking about more of what's been going on with the current situation with the attorney general. Um, just at the beginning of March, there was a you know some action taken by the uh, general assembly, uh, kind of as a result of uh, some ongoing um, issues or. Uh, how do I want to put this nicely again? I'm not trying to to talk ill of anybody, but just being very factual, there's been some controversy around the the current AG, kind of in outside of his official role, which has led to the uh, this last one of the the last bills that was to get um, pushed through the General Assembly, and that was if an AG is suspended for thirty or more days, then mm-hmm they're no longer eligible to be in that role. And, and and I think that also having been around the state house for a little bit, I know there's some ongoing tensions, even before all of this controversy happened with AG Hill, there's some tensions between the, his office and the governor's office. How do you see the, the role? Because these are independently elected offices uh, and the relationship between the governor's office and the AG's office? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think the question needs to be put in a context of some sort, because to, to go back to legal ethics class back in law school, the fundamental question of every lawyer is who is the client? Because the client dictates where your duties lie. Being a lawyer means that you're a fiduciary. It means that you come second. It's a servant role. And I take that very seriously. The oath of the attorney general is the same oath that I took when I was sworn into the the Indiana bar at the Supreme Court. It's to defend the Constitution and uphold the laws of our land. And so my my role as attorney general would be different in different contexts. So many times, one role of the attorney general, to give an example, is to give advisory opinions to to clients that ask for it. So it's possible that the governor could ask for my legal opinion on a particular administrative or regulatory matter. And so my role there would to be sure that the governor had clear rules set before him and identify the options of what he can do. And then I would leave the policy making to the governor. Same same th- issue for the General Assembly. My, my principle in my own practice of law, I represent businesses, I don't tell my clients to get into the book business or into the tire business, but whatever business they're in, I tell them, these are the laws. These are the rules of the road. Here's how you can accomplish your business objective in a reasonable manner that complies with the law. And so I'm not running to be a policymaker. I'm not run. I'm, I think the, the role of the legislature is the le- to legislate and the role of the governor is to execute the law. My job is to help the elected officials do their jobs well within the bounds of the law. And I think it's important that we have good working relationships with everyone in state government. And that's something that I certainly want to to make sure that I would do as attorney general is to make sure that everybody feels like they can work with me 
that they trust my judgment, that it's a reasoned judgment based on the text of the law and on the constitution of our state. No, that, that's a very good explanation because I, I, I feel that based on, again, my own opinions here and, and kind of what I've, I've heard over the last few years and even the first oh, couple of years, I was still in state mm. government and kind of working behind the scenes. So I was able to hear some things. <laughs> But sure. I, I, you know, it it seems like that from a a party perspective that there were some conflicts going on that maybe the AG wasn't following lock and step with what the governor wanted from a party perspective or even others within the party that you know Curtis Hill was kind of wanting to go his own path and and it just seems like there there was some tensions going on and really what I'm, I'm getting to to just be completely you know blunt and open is do you feel if you were in that position that you would have to be lockstep with the party or would you do what is right and do what is you know constitutionally enabled and and you know again basically what is right for Indiana and for the the citizens? I, I will absolutely do what is right, what is constitutional, and I will fulfill the role that I've been given, right? It, being attorney general doesn't make you king of all things, and you can't solve all the world's problems, but there is a lane that you have, and within that lane, you need to do the job well, regardless, without without fear, without fear or favor, and that is to interpret the law fairly. And I realized in my own practice of law with, with clients, there's, you know, clients come to you and they say, I really want to do this thing. I really, really, really want to do this thing. And I realized early in my practice, I can't control what my clients do. They may do what's right. They may do what's wrong or what's legal or illegal. My job as the lawyer is to not compromise my best judgment. Lincoln said, our stock and trade as lawyer, lawyers is our judgment and our time. And I'm going to give Indiana both my best judgment and my time. And so people, people will make decisions, but they will, they will not be able to say they were not advised well by me as attorney general. Great to hear. I think that's, for me, that's what I want to hear from um, an attorney general or somebody who's running for attorney general. So I kind of switch gears here a little bit. Uh, we've, we've, Dinging surrounded a little bit to this point, but why do you feel you're the most qualified for attorney general above and beyond the other two candidates? Well, I, I think we need a perspective in the office that has worked with Main Street Hoosier businesses. And I'm the only candidate that's done that. I've I've helped companies come from high tax, high regulatory environments like Illinois and make Indiana their home. I've seen the struggles of everyday Hoosier businesses and and seen early in my career, one client was doing a transaction and state law had two conflicting provisions. So the, the most law abiding people that want to comply with the law were given two obligations that were ir- irreconcilable and they couldn't comply with the law even if they wanted to because the law wasn't consistent. And so I think we need that perspective in the office. I think we need someone that's committed, that has been to every county and community in our state and building relationships with people to represent the people. I've worked for three Indiana judges. I've advised them on criminal and civil cases. I've seen how judges make decisions. I think that's a really valuable 
background to have. And um, I also, like I said, I have a master's in finance and a degree in management and believe that that can be very helpful in, in managing the affairs of the Office of the Attorney General. And that's what Hoosiers want. As I travel the state, people are people talk, talk to me and they want somebody that will be fearless, that's committed to showing up in their community and also committed to showing up in court and in the state house to represent their values. And that's what I'm going to do. So if you were elected, so kind of run down what your first 30 days would be like, maybe the first six months, first year of office. Yeah, it's, it's a four-year term. And so there's, there's a lot of things that I'd like to do. Number one, when I come into office, I want to end the practice of using private emails for public purposes. That's a practice that's been going on, and it's a practice that I believe needs to end. Secondly, I, I want to be the most transparent administration that Indiana's ever had. Right now, the, the office is the only office in, in state government that doesn't run its invoices through the auditor of state. I would, I would make sure that the auditor of state was, was handling every invoice in our office for this important reason. The auditor of state runs a transparency portal that uploads all of that information online so Hoosiers can see how the state spends our money. And I think that's an important thing for accountability to borrow from President Reagan. He said, trust but verify. There's, a, there's been a problem in the office that, that has become clear this year. Just this year, the Southern District of Indiana, Chief Judge Magnus Stinson, sanctioned the office for failing to adequately train lawyers. I believe that every client deserves competent counsel, the state of Indiana no less. And so I want to make sure that every lawyer in the office is ethically and competently trained to represent the state. Because when they go into court, whether it's a state or federal court, they don't go into the court representing themselves. They go into court representing you and I in the state of Indiana. If they fail on that endeavor, there is nobody else that can pick up the pieces to that. So we have to be sure that every lawyer is adequately trained to avoid embarrassments like a sanction, to avoid having to pay out attorney's fees like, like, happened, like that happened this year. The other thing that I'd like to do is to reduce the spending on unnecessary items, more in the prestige category of things. So the, in the last several years, the state, has, the state attorney general's office has spent $300,000 on chandeliers and artwork and a car and, and spends about a half a million dollars now on office space outside of Indianapolis. My measurement of whether or not we should spend money is, will this better represent Hoosiers in legal matters? Will this, will this directly help the taxpayer or not? And if it doesn't, we shouldn't be spending the money in the, in the public sector. We should try to constrain the growth of government all the time. And so being attorney general means being a good steward of, of the fisc, of the taxpayer's dollars. And so those are the immediate things that I would like to do. The longer view is if we invest in the talent in the office, I'd love to see, and there have been so many people that have invested in my career and that have helped me along the way. I want to help other young lawyers succeed in state government. And by training them to be competent lawyers, potentially they could turn turn to be uh, general counsels of agencies, be the, the top lawyer of an administrative agency in state government. Potentially they run for the general assembly and give back to the state that way. Or maybe even they become a judge, a state court judge or something like that. So I see the the attorney general's office is the front door to new legal talent in state government. And it ought to be an incubator for this talent so that Indiana has a long future ahead so that my my impact is longer than just four years that we're, we're training in, in individuals who can be a good resource for our state for the long term. No, very good. 
I want to, you know, since this is a show about cybersecurity. Sure. I, I want to touch on that. And my audience knows you know, there's an impact that cybersecurity has that we won't see maybe mm. four or five or more years. You, with these data breaches, the the criminals, they hold on to it. They wait. Um, they know that the credit monitoring freezes has a, a limited time span. So, I mean, they're patient. Um, but also then I, I think, too, the majority of the general public doesn't really fully comprehend the impact that identity theft would have or these um, data breaches actually has on us as individuals and companies. And and again, I've been on the the public sector side of private sector side of cybersecurity. I've seen the gambit from mom and pops all the way up to fortune 500 companies. But yet it seems like Week after week, month after month, there's a report of data breach after data breach after data breach. And I'm all for the for the private companies to take care of themselves first. Do not allow the opportunity for federal government or state government to come in and say, well, you're not taking care of it yourselves, then now we have to step in. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, that that's balanced with, at a point, the lack of taking cybersecurity seriously goes from misfeasance to malfeasance, in mm-hmm. my opinion. I think there's, I don't know where that line is. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not a lawyer, but I think that at some point, a company knowingly is putting their customers at risk by not doing, you know, even some of the basic one-on-one cybersecurity stuff. We've seen over the last year, the attorney general has actually along with uh, several other states, uh, attorney generals go after in, uh, who's your company up in Fort Wayne mm-hmm. um, for not protecting uh, medical or health information of their customers secure. What are your thoughts on those type of actions? What do you, I'm not, I, I'm not going to necessarily pin you on this specific case, but in general, what are your thoughts around Cybersecurity, these companies that don't take cyber seriously, they don't protect their customers' information like they should. Right. Yeah. Th- and this is an emerging area that is is a good, this is a good thing to discuss. And I, I'd love to get your thoughts as well. In my practice representing companies, what one of the things that I've done is we writing contracts is like writing a private law between two, two people. Mm-hmm. So when a, I represent a company that's buying or selling assets, you know, at times, if particularly in a company with a company of a lot of intellectual property that they're concerned with getting out or having China steal it or, or a cyber criminal stealing their, their intellectual property will include contractual provisions that require a minimum level of care in terms of cybersecurity protections so that there's a contractual obligation of the counterparty protecting the intellectual property of, of the client. Because we want to be sure that if we're going to be doing due diligence and, and opening up the crown jewels to a potential buyer, we want to be sure that they're, they're not going to, to get it out in the ether and the, the internet. And so that's one solution that people ought to think about is contracts are powerful and, and, and our, our laws in America allow us to do lots of different things with contracts. And so we can write 
covenants and agreements that that say you're going to use this level of care, you're going to do these things specifically, and that's when we bring the IT people in and say, what is it that we need to include in here? And and that's one solution I think for people to help themselves. The second issue is, as you probably know, the biggest the biggest uh, hole in people's defenses and enterprises is not systems, it's people. It's making sure that the frontline folks that work in a business that work uh, in government are aware of the risks of cybersecurity all the time, because in, in particularly with coronaviruses, that cyber criminals are fast and they're capitalizing on the coronavirus and pretending to be different people. And so businesses ought to be training their employees to be watching for phishing attempts and, and all kinds of other potential intrusions into the company because it's it's people clicking on things that they shouldn't be clicking on that a lot of times opens up the the enterprise to to problems. So um, this is where the General Assembly comes in. We we have a data breach statute on the books already. And the question, a public policy question for the General Assembly would be what is the role of the state of Indiana with respect to cyber crimes and cybersecurity? I think that as an initial matter, we ought to be sure that our own our own state is secure before we go out and start regulating the rest of society. And so we ought to be asking the introspective questions of, is the state of Indiana secure? Are the political subdivisions that the the state of Indiana has created, are they secure? Are we providing help and expertise to those people? And then, and then, and only then, what is the role of the state in, in helping keep consumers safe. And that's a public policy question and a line drawing question that the people's elected legislators ought to be making. No, that's a fair point. And I can answer some of that because I actually work for the Indian Office of Technology uh, and their cybersecurity. So I know the state is doing everything that it can from the executive branch perspective, at least that falls underneath uh, the governor's uh, scope and purview, yeah. even bringing in offices like the Secretary of State on a you know partnership because again separately independently elected, uh, and so I'm more confident at the state level. Now, where my confidence starts to fizzle quite a bit is county and municipal cybersecurity, especially yeah. our rural counties and cities. Uh, they the resources there that are going to very specific things and adding cyber is asking them to learn Greek. And in many cases, they, a lot of times in in the smaller ones will outsource to third parties or even their brother or sister or family because they, they, that's who they know that knows it. So that's to me, the, the, the local subdivisions are, are my concern because of the lack of resource, both monetarily and people to be able to, to do it. But I do know through the Indiana Executive Cybersecurity Council that um, was actually created by Governor Pence, reaffirmed when Governor Holcomb took office, we're, we are trying to do these things. It is a collaboration of the public sector, private sector, and academia coming together over two hundred people representing almost as many organizations, large and small, coming together to help the legislature. Here's what we need to do. Now, I I personally feel 
uh, and this is one of my big criticisms of Governor Holcomb on the cybersecurity issue, and, and you know, not to say his other political um, and, and policy oh, um, platforms have not been needed, but on mm-hmm. a cybersecurity, I mean, he, you know, yes, he's uh, established or reestablished the uh, Executive Cybersecurity Council, but that's really where it stops. We need to get the legislature involved. And I take blame in that as well for not going out and doing enough and getting um, our uh, representatives and senators informed because I, I that is the, the biggest gap right now in Indiana is on the legislative front. We've seen other states like Michigan and Virginia, even California with the California Consumer Privacy Act. The legislatures are doing something. Here in Indiana, not so much. And, mm-hmm. and and I think, again, that has been our biggest weakness. We've got the talent. We uh, The focus has been on bringing businesses in. Obviously, the uh, opioid epidemic has been uh, front and center. But I think cybersecurity, if we really don't start nailing this down it, mm-hmm. from all facets of government, all facets of the the private sector, Again, we won't know what that impact's going to be because these hackers, these bad actors are patient and they right. will wait. And even some of the unintended consequences of our kids, uh, we may not see for years to come. But I, I do feel that the AG's office has a role to play in this. I mean, identity theft protection, consumer protection are some of the you know cornerstones of the office. And I think that pairs very nicely in uh, cybersecurity issues and cyber privacy issues. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, the attorney general has a role to play, and and perhaps when I'm elected, I, I'd love to have you uh, come and chat with me about how we can better inform actors in state government, including myself, about how to how to improve services to Hoosiers around the state to be sure that they're protected. I mean, the the role of the state is to protect the people. And uh, the fourth domain now in the military, it's been land, sea, air, and now cyber. They've added as a new domain. And so that is something where the state needs to catch up with the federal government and, and counties and localities need help. And, and so we're going to need citizens like yourself that are informed and on technical matters to help. And, and I'm certainly happy to pitch, pitch in my legal my legal perspective, however, it can be helpful to, to better make sure that Hoosiers are safe. Well, I will definitely take you up on that offer because as we've seen, and, and I actually had this conversation over text with a, a, a supervisor of mine. I, I teach remotely for a university in Texas, and we do a lot of um, building material for state and local uh, governments and I texted her because there was something on IBC. Tony Katz had mm-hmm. had mentioned um, with uh, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, blaming the federal government for not coming in and giving them ventilators and meeting their request. And that just it it sparked something in my head. I'm mean, like, that's the exact reason why states and local governments need to be self sufficient. When we are in a nationwide crisis, the federal government only has so much. Mm-hmm. They only have some, uh, whether it's equipment, it's manpower, it's resources. But the only thing that they can really create is dollars 
And that has a major impact on the economy and inflation and a lot of other economic forces. But we, this, and, and I'm not, I, I, go I'll, ahead. I'll, I'll have you just there. Yeah. Right? So the, the federal government doesn't create dollars. It takes dollars. <laughs> right? It takes it from you and yeah. me and, and from future taxpayers. And so it, it can reallocate dollars among people. And that's, and that's what it loves to do. Well, I, sh- I let me clarify. I should say they can print money. The, the, yeah. the one thing that they can do that most, you know, states can't, they can't print dollars the federal government can. So I appreciate for that, that correction that my libertarian friends are going to kill me on that one. So <laughs> no, no, it's okay. And even, even with printing, it dilutes the value of, yep. of dollars that we have. And yep. So, so that the money doesn't, it's, we have to remind ourselves that the money doesn't grow on a tree. It comes from you and me. Yep. Which is one of the dangers of this shutdown. And again, another conversation for another time is the amount of money not being created, the amount of wealth that's not being created because the government has deemed certain businesses essential versus others. And I get from a public health standpoint, again, I work in the healthcare industry now, I understand the reasoning behind the stay at home, but Mm -hmm. I think, and I've been crushed on social media when I've like, hey guys, we need to really... Think about what we're doing here beyond Mm -hmm. just the health perspective. Actions have consequences. So, um, but, and I, and I see there are a lot of similarities between this biological virus versus what a cyber attack would look like. Um, And it scares me. Um, And I think from a, a panic standpoint, when people can't get to their computers, they can't get to their manufacturing machines because it's all internet based and and goods aren't being produced. At least right now we can have some th- products being produced and those, you know, shelves are being able to be restocked. So the panic hasn't we saw a little bit of panic start out at the beginning of this issue and it's settled down a little bit, but when the machines don't turn on and milk's not being able to be produced, food, all of these stuff Mm-hmm. It real panic will set in, and that absolutely terrifies me. And it could happen uh, from a cybersecurity spect- uh, perspective. And I'm not trying to fear monger. Russia, China, um, some other advanced persistent threats have demonstrated that they have the capability. So, it, it, like I said, it does scare me, and I think we've got a long way to to go. But my goal, my thing, because I'm the state's rights first. I'm a constitutional, you know, federal, small federal government. Let's keep the power as local as we can. Um, We need to be self-sufficient. We cannot expect the federal government to come in and be the white knight. They haven't done it now during the COVID crisis. What makes you think that they're going to be able to do it during another crisis? So sorry, I went on, I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) That's, that's okay. It's the 10 most scary words in the U.S. languages. I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help, right? And mm-hmm. some people, as I've talked to them, it's, it's easy to see how things can continue to spiral out of control. And there's a lot of uncertainty and people are concerned about continued federal intrusion or, or government intrusion into our lives and that this could lead to a bad place that we don't want to be. I think there's actually an opportunity for the opposite of that to happen. People are, are spending time with their families. 
people realize their own mortality, that, you know, we will all die one day and we're faced with uncertainty in our own health situation. And we're seeing what federal uh, intrusion into our lives, how far that can go. Is that, Do we really feel how much progress is the government making with its efforts during this crisis? And so we could have the opposite response as a society and say, you know, the government acted in good faith during this time. It did many things, but we do not need a further growth of the size of government because there's a limit to the competency of the government. The government cannot be all things to all people at all times. Hmm. And so I think that we ought to remind ourselves that there's an opportunity at this point to speak about what our view of government ought to be. And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race yesterday or the day before. (laughs) good riddance. And uh, he wanted to fundamentally change the way our society was to have a, a very central federal system that was strong, that governed everyone, that reallocated everyone's property. Um, and this is our opportunity as conservatives to speak and to say there are more institutions in society than just the government. The government has an important role to play, but we have the family, we have charities, we have churches and synagogues and and, and all kinds of institutions in our society that make society work. Yep, I absolutely agree with that. Well, I know we're a little bit past our hour here. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking about why you're running for AG. Is there anything else you, you want to say to the audience before we wrap up? Well, I, as I'm, this is Good Friday today, and it's strange for me and other people around our state that are, are not going to be in church today or on Sunday. And and I guess the thing that I'm thinking about now, as a personal matter, is just David was in the wilderness and lamented that he couldn't be in the temple of God. And so that's the perspective that I'm having. It's the first time in my life that I've not been in church on Easter Sunday, um, but going to be celebrating. Jesus' resurrection on Sunday, just just the same, and sort of thinking about it the same same way David was in the wilderness. So, uh, for what whatever perspective that that's helpful to listeners, that's that's how I'm thinking about this Easter. Well, thank you for that. Happy Good Friday, Happy Easter, and again, I'm going to hold you if you get the nomination. I'm going to I'm going to hold you to come back on the show. Please, I'd, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thanks, right. Nick. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. My pleasure.